I want to begin by thanking Gloria Korsman and Dan Wells for doing some rather late game <laughs> research for me and pulling some documents that helped me compile a little bit of what I'm sharing with you today. And I don't plan to be terribly deep on the structure, but it was great to know that both of them were so invested in um, the beautiful history of this church and building, so thank you. I would also like to actually thank Conrad Wright, um, some of you who, whom you may remember, for his writing was also uh, a part of what inspired me to offer this message today. Um, and I continue to find myself returning to his work time and time again when I want to understand this organism called First Parish in Cambridge. And it is spectacular to feel as if he is looking at me and saying, okay, maybe, you might have gotten that right. <laughs> this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. That is the quote of scripture from Genesis chapter 28, verse 17, that began the sermon that dedicated this building. I'll say that again. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So that quote began the sermon that was delivered on December 12th, 1833, which oddly enough was also a Thursday, like it was this week. Who knew? This is very timely, apparently. And that quote is deeply religious, and it likely doesn't resonate with you as it did with the congregation 186 years ago. Times have changed. Frequently, I will come into this space during the week, and I ask a question based on knowing that this place was built with such an explicitly religious intent. What do we want this space to be now? as if the timbers could tell me the answer. What does this place to need, need to be in the world today? Part of the reason I ask this question is because my basic philosophy of leadership begins with asking questions. And I also wonder why this space is sitting empty on a weekday. In a world and a place where space is at an absolute premium, why is there no demand for this place at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday? One answer may lie in another quote from the church dedication sermon preached by Dr. William Newell, minister of the church from 1830 to 1868. Form follows function. This building was created with the express purpose of being a house of worship for the parish, which included both the community of Cambridge as well as that of Harvard College. Dr. Newell says, it is not superstition, but the sound philosophy of the heart which hallows the seats apart to religious uses, some chosen place, where from Sabbath to Sabbath, God may be worshiped his character and providence made known, the religion of the Savior preached, defended, explained, and enforced, 
where from Sabbath to Sabbath we may assemble with our families and friends and publicly acknowledge our common dependence upon the Almighty Father and our accountability to his laws. For this purpose we have for this purpose have we erected the house in which we are today met for the first time. And we are now assembled according to ancient and appropriate usage to dedicate it to the worship of God and the teaching of Christianity. Now, the community is no longer dominated by a specific Christian concept of God and openly embraces those who have no desire for one. By that measure, this building has long outlived its purpose. Built to specifications outlined by committees from both the church and the college, it needed to be able to house the whole community on public days, commencement, presidential installations, and such. The last Harvard president to be installed here was the long-serving and revolutionary Charles W. Eliot, who delivered a 105-minute oration for the occasion on October 19, 1869. I will not run that long. Commencement and public days moved permanently to the new Memorial Hall upon its completion in 1876. When this building was completed in 1833, the Unitarian Church by name was just emerging from a controversial division within the Congregationalists. The conservative Congregationalists, who were in the minority, were not keen on what they perceived as a diluted expression of their Christian faith. They felt that anything being preached that was other than strict Christian doctrine that included acknowledgment of grace as being given only by God and not cultivated by good works or readily accessible to all in the world was preaching the equivalent of a non-religion. They felt that ministers who were not preaching this doctrine were not the people that they wanted to pay to fill their pulpits. This was all complicated by the fact that at the time Massachusetts was in the process of finally abolishing what was essentially the state church, whereby the congregational churches were supported by a tax that was paid by the broader population. If you ever wondered what the word anti-disestablishmentarianism meant, you are about to find out. <laughs> At last. <laughs> Disestablishment is quite simply the separation of church and state. The Puritan Congregational Church had been established as the Church of the Commonwealth. The church parish was both the governing body as well as the religious body of the town. With the arrival of new migrants from Europe who were Baptists, Methodists, Quakers, Presbyterians, and other Protestant sects, not to mention Catholics, this made less and less sense. Over time, there were waivers granted and new rules established to try to continue funding the church with just the Congregationalists taking on more and more of the burden as different churches outside of their parish system grew. Eventually, it became clear that disestablishment, you see where I'm going? A formal separation of church and state would need to be the law of the land. This is why the reference 
to religion in the First Amendment of the Constitution is referred to as the Establishment Clause. Lights go off. The last three states to disestablish were Connecticut, New Hampshire, and last but not least, Massachusetts in 1833. Someone who opposed this process and the separation of church and state would be considered anti-disestablishmentarian. And, and, yeah, I can't say it, anti-disestablishmentarian. There we go, it's a lot of syllables. Of course, one could probably just call them the establishment. <laughs> Forget all those double negatives. But I didn't write the dictionary. The split between conservative and liberal parts of the Congregational Church in Cambridge happened in 1827 with the departure of a significant minority of the church community who then formed the, she the Shepherd Congregational Society. That was the conservative portion of the church. Today, this congregation is what we know as First Church Congregational in Cambridge. Of course, we don't really recognize a strong theological difference between the two communities now. Even with the explicitly Christian language of the First Church Liturgy, we share many values and priorities in how we navigate the world of faith. Still, it's easy to see, easy to recognize how their space asks someone to lift their eyes, their minds, and their hearts to God. What do we lift our eyes and minds and hearts to in our space? Out in the parlor, we have drawings that are our first step in describing what we want this space to be. Fully accessible from, by all from the front, a door that signals to the world we are open for business, green space for people to gather, replacing the original adornment as a statement of our historical place in the community. These are all good things and valuable. But how do we connect those outward demonstrations of our actions and feelings within the space? And more importantly, how do we connect those demonstrations to who we are as both individuals and as a gathered community? We will build an accessible front, but what is our day-to-day -day personal commitment to access and inclusion? A door that says open, but open to do or be what? We will create a green space. Is our priority to make sure people don't set up camp or to invite active use as a gathering spot? We will replace the original adornment. And what is our commitment to making sure it doesn't fall to disrepair again? The outward demonstrations are important, but they have to be supported by inward commitment and connection. What do we want this place to be? What is our relationship to this building as a symbol of our relationship with one another and with the community? We are in uncharted territory in terms of the age of this meeting house. The first meeting house stood for only 18 years from 1632 until 1650. The second for 56 years from 1650 to 1706. 
The third for another 50 years from 1706 to 1756 with a significant renovation in 1717. The fourth meeting house stood from 1756 to 1833, 77 years. Our current building has been standing now for 186 years. It has had three major renovations to its interior and almost met its demise in, 16, in uh, excuse me, 1905, when the congregation considered erecting either a brick colonial building or a stone Gothic one like First Church in its place. Instead, the congregation kept the meeting house and added the parish house while renovating the interior of this space to mimic a colonial building and style that actually never was. The parish house, too, almost met its demise a short 35 years later, but instead was completely reconfigured to include the Crothers Chapel, creating an entirely new second floor, which is why we now have the barn room. In 1957, the building team decided to carve out the space beneath this meeting house to create the Stebbins Auditorium and Gallery, which then was altered again in 2014 to be repurposed as the Y to Y shelter. That's a lot of change, especially for a building that was originally built for the sole purpose of pious worship, twice on Sundays, by the way, and only expected to last 50 or 60 years at best. As this building approaches its second century, God willing, we need a plan. But this cannot be a plan that is born first from form, like the colonial refit, nor can it be done from selective functions like the Crowther's Chapel, the Stebbins Auditorium and Gallery, or even Y to Y. Approaching a second century of life for our meeting house will require a comprehensive and strategic plan that envelops all of the building like its tongue and groove sheathing, and it begins with some basic questions. Who are we? How do we relate to this space because of who we are? Who are we in relationship with, and who do we want to be in relationship with because of our relationship to this space? Where do we want to go from where we've been? If this space were to go away, who would we be without it? We had a taste of that two years ago with the ceiling. We are very different without this space, and my challenge to this community is to find a way to lock into who that is because in order to survive, First Parish must be, as William Newell says at the end of his sermon, a house not made with hands. Form follows function. If we want this space to be a hopping and more active and, quite frankly, lucrative space than it is or has ever been, or was originally ever designed to be, that activity begins with us. 
and it is new. It begins with the hearts of people who care, who know each other passionately and well, and who are excited to show up in the world. It begins with a community that doesn't just hear the words abundance, gratitude, and generosity, but lives them. It is not a checklist of activity or personal projects either. What I'm talking about comes from a deep dive into understanding how we are intertwined with each other, a process that manifests a reasonable, achievable, and most importantly, sustainable plan, a strategic plan that at its heart is an elegantly simple expression of our love. What do we want this place to be? How can it reflect who we are and who we want to be? May it be so.